welcome everybody. Um, thank you, Leslie. Thank you for panelists um, for um, sharing your own journey with uh, instincts and subtypes. We have about an hour and 45 minutes now to explore your thinking about this subject, um, to um, see what it is, where it is that you agree, disagree, whatever. Um, I imagine the discussion will go all over the place. I do have a couple of beginning questions that I would like to ask you um, because I hear them a lot from people. Um, they may seem almost too basic for you guys, but I think they're important questions to address um, just in terms of setting a foundation for those who are on the call who are not steeped deeply in this topic. And the first question is, what's the difference between instincts and subtypes? And Mario, I think you also use the term instinctual biases. So if there's, in your opinion, if there's a difference between instinct and instinctual bias, we'd like to hear about that. Um, but the difference between instincts and subtypes, what is it? People frequently, I think, maybe not frequently, but I have heard people use the two terms interchangeably um, without distinguishing what they're really talking about. So who wants to begin to talk about that? I, I say something short. Sure, with, uh, sure. go ahead, say, When I'm talking about the combination of the type pattern and the instinct, then I think of it as that is a subtype, that combination, right? I'm talking about a, a social six or a, a, a self-preservation two, what have you, that. But an instinct are what they drives are in and of themselves. So self-preservation is not a subtype of anything. It's its own aspect. I used to say this to help people make the distinction. Um, blackbirds and bluebirds are subtypes of birds. But black and blue are not subtypes of birds. This is basic logic. But, you know, people use the terms in different ways, but that just that's how I use it. I say, if I'm talking about the combo, okay, that's that can be a subtype. When I'm talking about the drives or the biases, as Mario was calling it, in and of themselves, I call them instincts. Thanks, Russ. I agree. That's fundamentally the same approach I'm taking. Okay. B? B, B you're, you're muted, B. Question number two. Um, <laughs> I do want to say something about the confusion because I, I agree with you, Kurt, that some people refer to the subtypes as instincts. And I agree, I agree basically with everything that all three of these guys have said about instincts and instinctual biases. I, I think they're very, they've been very clear. Um, I think one of the reasons why people refer to subtypes as instincts is because um, when the very excellent book, uh, The Wisdom of the Enneagram, came out, they called wings subtypes and they called mm -hmm. what we're calling subtypes instinctual variants. And because of the popularity of that book and the, their work, which is, you know, deservedly so, um, a lot of people learned subtypes as instinctual variants. And so I think they call, they refer to the instinctual variants in a shorthand by calling it the instincts. And you can tell me if I'm wrong, Russ, but that's that's the sense that I've gotten is that some people refer to the subtypes as instincts because of that. Uh, yeah. But it's exactly what Russ said, the instincts are these three categories, uh, these three drives or instinctual biases or groupings of instincts. Uh, so we're talking about three when we talk about instincts, and we're talking about 27 when we talk about subtypes. It's the way the instincts mix together with the type, uh, the passion, the patterns of the type. Good. Thanks, Pete. Peter, do you want to say anything? Well, um, to me, it's it's uh, one of the great things about this aspect of the Enneagram is that we can look at our instincts and we can also look at our subtype. You know, um, we all have these three instincts and we all can benefit from putting more awareness and attention in each of the areas. Um, uh, we say, well, the predominant instinct over the course of our lives generally gives us a particular, that's our subtype. So, you know, but it's not quite the same term because we got all three instincts. And, and you know, it's just amazing to see how, um, Again, this map is so helpful because it's like, you know, I'm predominantly social subtype, or social, I'm predominantly social instinct, which means that I'm a social subtype. And, um, and I got a lot of issues there, <laughs> a lot of work that comes through my subtype. We'll talk more about that. But also to be able to understand how that can, I can overweight that and neglect my other two instincts. And that's really limiting in my life, in my experience. It's not only limiting, but also can create problems over time. If I don't pay enough attention to my self-preservation instinct, um, I, I'm going to end up in trouble, which I have on occasion. And um, so again, it's just a reminder to like put attention in each of those three areas, not because they have to be equal, but they all we need healthy functioning in each of them to have a full, a full life. Thank you, Peter. That's a topic I want to come back to um, and make sure we touch on in terms of how each of you work with people in terms of working with the development or whatever you want to turn of all three instincts, or do you, or whatever. Um, but before we go on, uh, one more question. Mario, I'm still not clear in terms of whether or not your term instinctual bias is the same as instincts or if it's different in, in the way you use it. Yeah. Sure. So um, again, because I avoid the use of the word instinct, right, with this idea that there are these three discrete instincts, I talk about instinctual domains. Okay, so clusters of adaptations that are correlated in their expression in people and are related to each other. Okay, and uh, so my view, the reason I use the term instinctual bias is because each of us has a bias towards one of these domains, right? We uh, we give it more attention, we place more value on it. So for me, an instinctual bias is just a tendency to pay more attention to one of the domains than the other two. Okay. Thank you. Appreciate that. Second question. Okay, we're all talking about these three instincts, but Different terms are used to describe the three instincts by various of you. Um, could you talk about the names that you use to identify the instincts, why you use those names or terms, and how, this is a, this is a compound question, and how you 
describe each of the instincts, their characteristics. And if there's more than one kind of domain within each instinct, how do you parse that out? Um, does that question make sense to you guys? Yeah. So either take it as a whole or chop it up into pieces, however you want to address it. Who wants to be in? What are the terms that you use and why? <laughs> okay, all right. I'm going to jump in here. This is a big question. <laughs> people, people are watching, and I don't want to just sit sitting here staring at each other. Yeah. All right. So, um, so you know, as we know, I think I'm the outlier here, right? So I use terms that are different from everybody else's. Right. Uh, the reason, again, I came across that I adopted these terms is because I started seeing uh, correlated behaviors that were not captured by the terms as they existed. Okay. I also started to feel that uh, in addition to, in some ways, being a little bit limited, um, often misinterpreted, right? So a couple of people have already talked here about the, the so-called social subtype. Socials are not necessarily extroverted, right? They don't want to be the center of attention. They don't want to be the crowd. So for me, people always tend to get confused around social. So I was uncomfortable with that. Um, uh, as far as sexual, yes, yeah, sexual activity and sexual impulses are part of this bigger domain, but there's more to it uh, than that. And so I was looking for words that capture what I saw as the broader cluster. If we look at self-preservation as well, there are correlated behaviors here that are not just about preserving myself, but about preserving other things. So what I find in people who are who have a dominant preserving bias is a tendency to, um, uh, to, to want to preserve things, to preserve traditions, for example, uh, to preserve ideas, to preserve artifacts. Okay? Um, my wife is a preserving seven, and she records every moment of our children's lives on video or film, right, uh, pictures. Okay? Uh, now, does every preserver do that? No. Do non-preservers do that? Sure. But I see these tendencies to want to preserve things. Okay? So for me, the terminology is rooted on um, trying to capture, uh, in a clear way, the, the broader set of correlated behaviors I saw. Okay? Um, now, I think you said uh, part of the question was about the other two biases. Is that correct, or am I getting ahead of us here, Kurt? I, I don't hear you, Kurt. Sorry. My, my question was, um, what terms do you use for each of the instincts or instinctual biases, and what, what are kind of the characteristics or the domains within each instinct? For example, I'll give you an example. Right, right. So somebody could say, listening to you, Mario, oh, I preserve food. I make jelly. I make jam. Right. I must be a preserving type or a self-preserving type. It, you know, or I, I hate groups, so I, I can't be social. So what are some of the characteristics of each of the instincts that can help people parse out more clearly for themselves what their dominant instinct might be? Yeah. And I ask that of all of you. So I'll just I'll just finish then uh, with, with my response to it. So for me, the preserving domain is about nesting and nurturing. Okay. Now all of us do all three of these things. Okay. Uh, we just do them in a uh, a differential pattern. Okay. I do more navigating stuff. Um, you know, my wife does more preserving stuff. I still preserve. She still navigates, but it's just different proportion. Okay. So um, we're talking about proportionate um, sets of behaviors. For me, the preserving domain is a cluster of um, activities that have to do with um, nesting and nurturing. Now I break each of these. And I'm not going to go into this now, but I break each of these domains into three subdomains, and then each of those subdomains into three other subdomains. Okay. But, Again, that's beyond what we do. I know Russ does something very similar. Uh, the navigating domain for me is all about how do I understand and track a herd, right? Russ talked about uh, understanding others. So psychologists or philosophers would call this theory of mind, okay? What is it like to be this other person? What are they thinking? How are they interacting with each other? So these are things that have to do with the navigating domain, right? It's about orienting to the group in some way. And the transmitting domain is uh, about attracting and bonding. And so that I can transmit something to you, right? I want you to pay attention to me. I want you to notice me so I can transmit something to you, whether it's my genes, uh, whether it's my ideas, whether it's my creations and so forth. Okay? So it's these clusters of behaviors that increase the chances that I can transmit something to you. It, can, and can I jump in here, Kirk? Because it was, it was something I noticed when in, in the conversations with all of you and in looking at some of your material is that there almost felt like there was some, there was an inner and outer piece here too. And, and again, it's like I've got that Kim Wilber hat on, that interior, interior um, what's happening inside. And then what do, what do you see on the outside, the behaviors? And um, Mario, I remember you talked about you know actions and this kind of thing. And it feels like that's 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 a little bit of what you're talking about here as well. Can can one or all of you speak to that? I'll let somebody else discuss that. <laughs> uh, well, I can say I use. Um, self-preservation, social, and sexual. Now, when I'm in the business setting, I use one-to-one, -one, but that's just because you don't really want to talk about sex in a business setting. So I, I realize that I think we all agree that language is imperfect, um, that none of these words uh, perfectly capture it, and that all of them can be misleading. For instance, social, uh, I completely agree with what Russ said. It's a lot of social subtypes are not extroverted. Uh, a lot of social subtypes would not say, I like to join groups or I'm comfortable in the group. That's not what it's about. Uh, and so I have I have brief definitions that I use for each, um, but I really, um, you know, I, I really emphasize really strongly in my work that we can't um, get too specific about a definition of an instinct because once you mix it with a type, it can look completely different. Um, the way the instincts manifest through different types um, shows up differently. And to your question, Leslie, I would say, the interesting thing about instincts is they're so fast. Instinctual impulses, like we, we often say in our work, if a thought is the speed of x uh, and a feeling is the speed of 10x, then an instinctual impulse is the speed of 100x. Um, and so it's much harder to self-observe your instincts ahead of time. 
So I often think that the way we work with instincts is through how they manifest in behavior. Now, you know, again, that's not, we also need to understand, you know, how does this instinct feel in my body and what happens, but oftentimes the way we notice it is after we've done something. So for instance, sometimes I don't notice my self-preservation instinct come up um, when I'm at the grocery store and somebody's in my way and they're, they're blocking my way. I can feel the surge of anger or when I'm running in the park and a car almost hits me. And all of a sudden I get really angry in a way that I don't uh, very often. So I think then it's like, oh, wow, I was just really angry. I just had this huge reaction and usually it's after the fact. So I think self-observing from the inside can be a little bit more difficult with these instincts. And it's often, and that's why one of the reasons why I study subtypes so much is that I often think that observing our subtype patterns or the way our instincts manifest in the context of our larger personality is the way we work with them best because it's through the patterns of behavior that result from these instinctual drives, which again, are very unconscious and oftentimes very automatic and, and hard to study before or impossible to study before the fact. Well, and too, when you're talking about it, that it happens so fast. I was working with a client the other day, and he said, it's just really, this isn't, he's a four hearts. He said, this isn't like me, but we're just supposed to keep six feet. And some woman got close to me in the vegetable aisle. And I was just like, oh, you know, he said, I just found this thing where, and, and that's not who I am. And um, it, it gives us a little, and, and that's why I said, you know, kind of welcome to the human race. And that's what these instincts feel like. It's like, yeah, it gives yourself a little bit of kindness that, that it shows up like that because it's so immediate. So I would like to hear from the rest of you in terms of what B's talking about in terms of the interaction of instinct with type. And um, my, my question is, B, I think what you're saying, if I'm hearing you correctly, is that it's it's hard to work with a person about their instincts without also talking about their type and the, the influence of instinct with type. Yeah, I would say you can do some work with instincts. You can, I'm not saying I never, we never work with instincts, we do. Um, but I do think that, you know, in other words, some people start to saying, well, I bring a lot on trips, so I must be a self-preservation, right? It's just not that, Okay. Other comments, thoughts? Yeah. Russ? Well, I think to really understand this, for me, I've got to take a couple steps back and look at what I'm looking at here, which we assume a lot of things that maybe we can't assume. One thing that people may or may not know, or may not have been taught, uh, on page 55 to 56 of In Search of the Miraculous, Rajiv makes very clear that the system doesn't work if you work with three centers. It requires five. And he's not yet talking about the higher emotional or higher intellectual center. He means self-preservation, sexual, and social are centers. Now, if we consider the complexity of the heart center or the complexity of the head center and all the different things that it does, why would we assume that these instincts could be pigeonholed in some very simple little behavior? That's very naive. <clears throat> the instincts are very complex. They're more, as Mario was saying, they're more like clusters of all kinds of things. <clears throat> I realized that, you know, some, gosh, 20 years ago, and I proposed this idea of zones, again, with the idea to, to echo what you were saying, B, that you recognize this first in behavioral patterns. Ultimately, to work with it, you've got to find it somatically. And the reason I look at instincts independent, you're going to find it first, yes, in how it mixes it up with your type because you're running your type pattern. But the reason to know about the instincts is that we have to learn to presence and occupy the instincts in a cleaner and cleaner way so that they can do a job that they cannot do when they're caught up in our type bias. They're for another purpose that our ego structure has usurped, you could say. So the, uh, the way I propose these zones to try to make it a little bit easier, and, and Mario referenced that. Uh, <clears throat> for example, self-preservation, I use the traditional terms just because. I use the traditional terms for the passions too, but I think whatever we're using as a word, we have to explain it. We have to flesh it out. If you say the passion of lust, you have to explain what that means, and it doesn't mean what people think it means. You have to unpack it. Uh, same with these. Uh, my three zones for self-preservation, I, I stuck with the tradition of making everything triadic. Uh, now, one more thing to say about that. This, for self-preservation, I have self-care, sleep, diet, exercise, you know, rest, all that stuff for self-care, brushing your teeth. The second zone is practicality and resource management. And those two, this is where people get confused. They could be in conflict. I know self-presidents who are really workaholic and they take really crappy care of themselves. I know other self-presidents people get up every morning and they do their yoga and their meditation, but they may not be that good with money or practicality. So you're not ever going to be equally good at all the zones. There are contradictions even within any of these. Uh, the third uh, zone, I, and, that, and that's managing time, money, energy, practical resources. The third is, is domesticity and home, which Mario also referenced. I know I've talked about this with me. It's the sense of self-pres dominance is about maintaining a, a base of operation, a safe place, a secure place, a comfortable place. And from there, I can go out and do whatever I do in the world. So I have for sexual, and I say, and I use sexual because both Ichazo and Naranjo and Gurdjieff all call it sexual. It is not intimacy. Intimacy is a function of the heart center. This is several inches below that. The center is in your, your sexual region. And if you can't tell the difference between intimacy and sexuality, you're going to get in trouble. <laughs> Exhibit A, our culture. Um, the, uh, the sexual, I've got three zones. I've got attraction, which is both attracting and being attracted. And so that's where it plugs in with what Mario's idea of transmitting. You know, I'm sending out a signal and I'm hoping you pick it up. And I'm also reading signals. Who's, where's, where's the juice around here? Uh, the second zone is, I have is exploration and energy. For animals to reproduce, they can't stay safe. They can't stay in the cave. They've got to go out and find each other. 
And so when there's a lot of that energy, you're, you're looking for edge, you're looking for the undiscovered, you're checking things out, you're sniffing the world. It's exploratory and it's instinctual. We don't know why we do that. Why do we go climbing a mountain? Self-res, social? I don't think so. Uh, the third uh, is called, I call merging. And this is where the one-on-one -on -one idea I think comes from because it's, it's this wanting to lose yourself in something, wanting to dissolve into something, wanting to lose your boundaries, get totally caught up. And of course, ideally that happens in a sexual relationship, but it can happen with a piece of music or art or, or a beautiful moment. But that, that actual wanting to immerse myself in something is, is the third zone for me. And these are imperfect. They're just ways of trying to talk about this and help people see that there can be contradictions, even when one of these is dominant. Uh, the social, I have um, reading people, being able to read people, pick up cues, read between the lines. Uh, notice mostly people never say what they really mean. And it, the more you have a social instinct developed, the more you can interpret what they actually mean, even though it may not be what they said. Reading a meeting, reading a mood, picking up little changes in body language and face. Some people are really good at that. Some people ooh, get scared to encounter people because they not they feel challenged in reading people. Uh, the second zone is connecting. People mix this up with sexual all the time. The desire to connect is social. The desire to energetically get into something with someone or something is sexual. They're different. To create a bond and to connect with someone is necessary for social. If you're going to have a family, if you have a group, you have to be able to connect. This is about communication, the instinct to communicate, to talk, to exchange, to, you know, figure out what's going on with each other. Uh, it's also about play, <laughs> being able to sort of, through play, we get to know each other and find out about each other and, and connect. Uh, and I also say social is about maintaining connection, not just creating it, but maintaining it. If that's uh, animals that have just sexual instinct and no social, they get together, reproduce, they go off, they don't see each other ever again. Um, the last is participation, which is um, social is the need to participate in the human experience, the need to contribute something. Um, the need to feel belonging and part of something and that my involvement in that matters. When we cut, we punish people by putting them in solitary confinement. Many people are having a hard time even in the quarantine now because it's, it's interfering with our ability to participate in the world in a lot of ways. Imagine if we didn't have the internet. So and yeah, so anyway, that's the zones and, and to answer your question that I, I brought that into the field because to try to help people because you're never gonna have all three of them equally. You probably have two of them very strong and maybe one that, that lacks. Thanks, Russ, that's really helpful. Um, hearing about the various um, domains or zones of different instincts, it's helpful because I think frequently, I don't know frequently, but I think sometimes people latch onto one of those zones and yeah. think that they're either that type or that that instinct is dominant or not dominant because they either have it or they don't have it, or they relate to it or they don't relate it. So that clarification is useful. Peter, I, I'm like, one of the areas where I, I hear people getting confused is with the term one-on-one. -on -one. Could you talk about the term one-on-one -on -one and kind of what it implies and attains um, from your perspective in terms of giving people greater understanding of uh, your thinking about it, what it means and what it contains and what it doesn't contain? Well, that's a good question, Kurt. Thanks. Not a, not a question I necessarily welcome, but, but a fair <laughs> question. Um, you know, the we change the language as we go along, depending on what's useful. I think the one-on-one -on -one term can be more inclusive. I, I mean, really, in my heart of hearts, it's the sexual instinct, right? But when we talk about that, it, we have to kind of follow up, say, well, it's about sex, but it's more than that. Leslie was referring to this earlier in the guy in practice. It's like there's some, it's an aspect of the life force, right? That these three instincts are different aspects of the way that the life force is expressed inside of us, but also it's expressed in our being in the world. And so, um, so we can say, yes, it's sexual instinct, but it's also about a certain kind of an intensity. And, um, it, it, and that intensity can go in different directions, but it has a certain quality, a certain feel to it. Um, Mr. Gurdjieff had some funny ways to talk about sexual energy and hydrogen 12. And, you know, um, I first was learning the, uh, the, uh, the subtypes with uh, Kathleen Spieth, and she said, you know, it's like uh, the one one or the sexual subtypes, they tend to leak hydrogen 12, which is a very funny way of talking about it. But there is something in the eyes, a certain kind of intensity that comes through. Uh, more so for that subtype, but something that we all do at, at times when we are channeling and expressing that, that the intensity of that sexual energy. And we can see it in a, in a great performance. You know, the original term here from Echazo was called syntony. Go figure, you know, trying to explain a term like syntony, but beyond my big grade. But, um, we, we, we use one-to-one -one because it, it's more inclusive. And when we're teaching to a variety of audiences, be references in terms of the workplace, there's also other places where one-to-one uh, -one, um, seems to uh, be more inclusive. Um, uh, and we can also say, and it's also the sexual instinct, but it's, you know, it's this, it's, you know, we talk about one-to-one -one style and relationships and what that means, and uh, not necessarily about genital sexuality, but it certainly has to do with a certain aspect of the life force that we would say is related to the sexual instinct, the intensity of that. Yeah, yeah. If I could, yeah, yeah. If I could add one brief thing just about the sexual instinct, it's also about rivalry. And I think that concept really helps me understand like, how sexual dominance can be different uh, is because that's why it can be a little more competitive, a little more aggressive or assertive is because it's rivalry. It's, you know, in, engaging in that, uh, bringing a little bit of aggression. I like that. Yeah, that's good. Right. Rivalry. That's, that's an important concept, I think, that needs to be included with the sexual. Yeah. I'd like to add, add a comment onto that, too. If I could, for me, the, um, what I call the transmitting domain, um, 
in reality, it's all of these things that we do that uh, demonstrate reproductive fitness, right? That that draw you into wanting to be with me rather than someone else. Okay? Now these impulses manifest in lots of different ways, right? So intensity about experience and so forth, but a lot of them are really rooted in that sort of uh, uh, that sort of end. Um, and, and and one more, which is when we when we think about the word for the sexual subtype of mind, the word union, that we're just so key to all of the sexual subtypes, you know, all different forms of looking for union or finding union or not finding union and so on. Now, and we, we can see where people can use this particular instinct to make a direct connection with the divine. And this is this was this again going by people's lived experiences. You know, over the years we've met so many people who are on a spiritual path, sometimes even religious clergy, uh, who uh, were predominantly uh, sexual subtype, one-to-one subtype, and their experience of connection to the divine, divine spirit, again had some of that same quality of intensity. And um, it's fascinating for me to, to look at different kinds of leadership, you know, according to subtype. And I'm telling you, the one-to-one, especially the word sexual subtypes, especially the, you know, like using nine as a, as a keynote for this, is like they can kind of open up the doors to the union experience, and it's very direct and very personal and very intense, and has a very different quality than uh, religious uh, or spiritual experience that comes through the other instincts or leadership of the other subtypes. Yeah, that's what I meant by merging. That particular zone is exactly what you're saying. Love the zones. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and we talk about different uh, dimensions of the instincts, and one dimension is the spiritual dimension of the instincts. And we find that sexual dominance tend to gravitate towards spiritual experiences that are about fusion or mystical union, whereas um, the self-preservation subtypes tend to be more drawn toward silence or stillness or contemplation, and the uh, socials tend to be drawn more towards sangha or service. Uh, so there are a lot of different dimensions. We have the psychological dimensions, so there's a lot we can say, but right. it's probably not time. Right. Great. So, there's somebody asked a question from Mary, and, and it speaks to something that, you know, Kurt and I talked a little bit about this too in preparing, is the evolutionary nature of, of life, of groups, of, of ourselves personally. And Mary said, you know, in the past, I've been very self-pressed, but after listening so far today, I see myself as strong social also. My question is, can one instinct become more prominent as one grows and evolves? I know our type does not change, but can our instinct change? And this kind of speaks to a lot of these themes that, that y'all are bringing up. Uh, this this piece around evolution both just from a collective and then my personal evolution well one thing i want to say right there in response to what you said about mary is i think there are two different things going on there one is how do you identify what your dominant instinct is and we can think we're one but actually we're another because we're saying well i do this so maybe that means i'm self-preservation so that's one thing uh and, and the, with the question of do we change um my sense is is that a lot of the goal of working with the instincts is creating more balance now, one of the problem, one of the things that happens when we're in personality, sort of at the, by definition, we're fixated in personality, um, is our instincts are distorted, meaning our passion, our, our type patterns kind of get in there and sort of interfere with the free flow of the instinct. Uh, Naranjo said, in health, if we're all very, very healthy, what that means is, is our instincts flow as needed. You know, so when you're hungry, you eat. You know, when you need companionship or you want to merge with someone, you go do that. Um, and that what happens is because our passion gets involved, we get certain things that get sort of inhibited and certain things that get overdone. Um, so I think part of working with it is balance. I would say, I, in my opinion, but it's just my opinion, I don't think, I think it's very difficult to change your sequence uh, completely. So just to go from a self-preservation dominant to being a sexual dominant. Now, I think you can definitely bring up your sexual instinct if it's not dominant, and you can learn to kind of manage some of the behaviors around being self-preservation dominant, and they can become more imbalanced. Uh, but I, I think it's, it, it can be hard to completely change your subtype. Mm. Where are all of you? Are, are all of you in agreement with B, or do you want to fine tune that at all? Yeah, I'll, I'll, if I could fine tune it a little bit. Uh, so, uh, and I, I completely agree with what B said. Um, now, circumstances bring out things in us, right? So, uh, extreme circumstances will bring things out in us. Uh, I, I'm thinking that all of us right now are a whole lot more preserving than we might be under normal circumstances, given that we're facing a global health and economic crisis, right? So, um, you know, I see this in my clients. I see it myself. I'm doing a lot more preserving stuff because of circumstances. Uh, another example of this would be a woman who may not be preserving in general, but if she's eight and a half months pregnant, there's a whole lot of preserving going on there, right? So circumstances can sort of bring things out. And I always think of it uh, in that sense, like it's a, a flood overwhelming and changing the course of a river, right? Um, so, but then it goes back. Okay, as the water recedes or the circumstances recede, we tend to go back where we are. We have to remember that these mechanisms we're talking about are not something that exists in the ether, right? They're not metaphysical elements. They're wiring our brain, okay? And the more we repeat behaviors, the more myelinated they become in our brain, right? So changing something requires a lot of effort, okay? And so changing something this major about ourselves, is it possible? Perhaps. Would it require a huge amount of work that most of us are not capable of? Probably, right? So, so I don't see people changing, right? Um, and I, I think some of the, the times we have to watch out for something we I know that I kind of skipped over in the first question is about what keeps us keeps me awake at night. And one of the things that keeps me awake at night is confirmation bias, okay? where we see things in ourselves that may not be what's actually happening. Okay? And it gets to B's point, too, about uh, seeing these instincts from the outside uh, better than seeing them from the inside very often. Because I remember when I was first learning this from Don and Russ, I thought I was a self preservation Okay. And at one point, Don came up to me and said, have you found your, your subtype yet? I said, yeah, I'm a self preservation He says, no, you're not. You're social. And then walks away. Right? Now, you know, you're not supposed to do this. Okay. But he did. And he was absolutely right because he'd been observing it. Okay. But I had these, all these confirmation elements in my brain that said, oh, no, I'm self I'm self -pressed. And very often when we're looking back at our past, we're seeing very selective pieces of ourselves. Right. So in my experience, when people say to me, I used to be like this, but now I'm like this, 
I'm not so sure it's always as accurate um, as we think it might be. Yeah. Leslie, are you following up? I have another question if you're not. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead, Russ. You know, we're touching into the whole topic of the, quote, the stack, right? That we unconsciously prioritize these. And Peter, you, meant, you referenced that earlier, that everybody's got all three. The, again, the problem with the shorthand, I'm a self-prez, and you happen to have a sexual and social instinct too. Nobody is just one. That's ludicrous. That's how the Enneagram can be crazy-making. Uh, everybody's got all three in some. And so I always, one of the things I've been in the practice of the last couple of years, I don't ask people, which one are you? I think that's the wrong question. I ask, what is your particular relationship with each of these? And you'll notice that one of them is predominating. One of them is well myelinated, as you were just saying, Mario. One of them is going to be what we tend to obsess about. I did a long retreat on this in Europe. And what I had people look at is not what they like or what they think they prefer. I said, look at your life. How much time do you spend in these different zones of activity? Actually doing them versus what you might think you like to do. That most people find that very hard to distinguish. In my experience, I think people who have done some kind of real psychological or spiritual work, <clears throat> let's say the top loosens up a bit. And the second instinct, the second priority may more easily rise to the occasion as needed in the way we were just talking about. I think the healthier a person is psychologically, the more they can access any of these instincts as they need to, the more fixated we are, to use Oscar's term, the more we're stuck in the pattern. And even if something else is needed, we keep doing the same dance. I find in myself and when I talk with my students, it's the least developed instinct, which is the most immovable. The one we don't deal with is the one that just doesn't budge and it takes the most work. So my approach has been Yes, please be aware of your dominant subtype. Please be aware that you give way too much energy to that and start to see what that costs you. And you can't tell somebody, like, don't think about sex. Whatever you do, don't think about sex, right? You're going to always think about sex. Whatever you do, don't, don't think about an itch on your, on your left shoulder. Don't think about that. What you can do is redirect your attention at areas that need your love, attention, and awareness. So one of the ways I work on it is find your least developed instinct and start to give it some airtime. Start to put your real behavior behind that. You'll find it one of the most challenging things you ever do. And when you do it, you feel awesome. <laughs> you feel like, and you want everybody to give you credit for it too. Like I'm self-pressed is my difficult one. I have a terrible time to self-pressed, but if I balance my checkbook or I get enough sleep or I, you know, it, I, I make sure my home is all cleaned up, I want everybody to tell me and, and give me credit for what other people do quite easily. You know, so the, the blind spot, which is what I call it, not because we can't do it or don't have it. We do have it. But because it's what we tend to neglect, overlook, or make a lower priority, I find it a key to unlocking the imbalance. A lot of times I think we're overdoing the dominant instinct, the dominant subtype pattern, because of an issue, a buried issue in what we've given up, what we've neglected. So I just wanted to help throw that into the mix. Yeah, and if I could follow up on that, but you let me know. Yeah, do. So because we work with that a lot, my teaching partner, Ronaldo Pais and I, we work with what we, we, we have slightly different terminology. Um, so we call the, the sequence of the instincts a sequence, like what's dominant, what's second place, and what's we call repressed. The, the main reason we call it a sequence is because for me, when I think of a stack, I think of something fixed, like a stack of books, and we find the instinctual energies to be more in dialectical tension with each other. Uh, so we call it a sequence. Now, what I find is the dominant. What does, what does dialectical tension mean? Uh, so it means they're, um, these are energies. Right? So sometimes one energy is sort of taking up a lot of space. It's sort of in the foreground. Sometimes another energy, because like Mario said, um, something's happening in your life. So another energy comes up that they're just a little It's more, it, it captures more of the sense that these are instinctual drives, um, that they're energetic, um, and that they, uh, and that they're impulses, very quick impulses. Um, so the idea is, is that the dominant, it, it's, it's in the foreground. It's, it, it um, takes up a lot of real estate. It's, it's, it's what directs a lot of your reactions. Um, now the second one is, um, is second. Now, sometimes people relate to two, and it's hard to even choose. Uh, I think that the second, what distinguishes the second is it's easier to work on. Uh, when we, it's, It may be more repressed or it may be more dominant in your experience, depending on usually your history, uh, but it's easier if it's repressed to bring it up with some intentional work. Uh, but the third one, exactly like Russ is talking about, we use the word repressed because uh, we think it's not only a blind spot. Uh, it's almost like we have unconscious, we're unconsciously trying to keep it out of awareness for some reason. Uh, and so the repressed instinct is also very interesting to talk about. Like people who are self-preservation repressed put themselves in danger. Like not only do they maybe not take care of themselves, but they may not recognize when threats are out there. Um, they may leave their wallet at home. They may you know, forget their key to, they leave their keys in the car and someone steals their car. So there's a kind of, uh, an extreme, almost suicidal tendency. Uh, now with social repress, you find people that have real discomfort or mistrust of groups. Maybe they've even had a passive bullying or things like this. We also find these things are connected to trauma in, oftentimes. So we also find working with the repressed is very important. I found though, that it can be hard to work with the repressed first because what happens is you're trying to work on the repressed and bring it up, but the dominant is so strong, it's almost trying to protect you from that. Uh, so in some ways, I think it's often good to, to almost work on all three at the same time and see them as a system, um, but to be paying attention to both what's repressed and what tends to dominate. Can I, Kirk, do you mind? Can I yeah. Yeah. So, um, so again, there's there's huge overlap here when, with what we're all saying, and then some slight little refinements. So I just like to, or slight differences. So for me, I also am uncomfortable with the word stacking because, like you said, it implies these three three things that are kind of disconnected, right? I can take any three books and pile them on top of each other, and they don't necessarily have anything to do with each other. Um, for me, I think of them as patterns of expression, right? We all have the wiring for all of these 
adaptations in us, but we express them differentially. Okay, so one of them, uh, and this is where I use the word zones, but in a different term, a, a different way than Russ does. For me, what we think of the instinctual bias or the dominant instinctual bias is what I call a zone of enthusiasm. Right, the things I'm drawn to, it's the things I pay a lot of attention to. And I completely agree with what Russ said. Right, it's not. We have to be careful with the Enneagram as an ontological model. You are this. Right, I see it as a phenomenological model. You do these things. Right, here are patterns of behavior. And so, what is it that I spend my time doing or paying attention to? Is what points to our dominant bias or our zone of enthusiasm. Okay? If my wife and I are sitting on the sofa in the evening and we don't have to think about anything else, my mind goes to the navigating domain, hers goes to the preserving domain. Boom, right? Attention goes there. Okay? So um, it's a zone of enthusiasm, the dominant one. And I find there's another one that I refer to as the zone of inner conflict, okay? because I'm kind of drawn to it, but I feel uncomfortable with it. Right? I'm drawn to it, but I feel shame about it. There's part of me that likes to talk about it, but I also talk a lot about my anxiety in that area or my lack of skillfulness in that area. So I call that the zone of inner conflict. The third domain is what I refer to as the zone of indifference. Okay? Now, uh, he was talking about repression, possibly, uh, but what I find is that people just tend not to care about it, right? It's like this holds no interest to me, so I don't pay attention to it. For me, that's the preserving domain, right? Whenever people start talking about stuff related to preserving, right? You want to start talking about food, you want to start talking about you know security and safety, you want to start telling me about what's in their house and gardening. I am asleep in 30 seconds because I just don't care about the things that fall into that domain. Now, we also, when we're working with these things, we need to draw a distinction between skillfulness and awareness, right? I can be, I can have a bias towards a domain, but not be skillful at it, right? There are a lot of preserving types who are terrible at the things related to preserving, okay? And there are people who are skillful at those. So we have to think in kind of, in terms of a, um, a, a chart where the vertical axis is skillfulness and the horizontal horizontal axis is um, uh, self-awareness or self-management. And we want to be paying attention to what's happening to me in each of these domains and how can I build skillfulness in the domains or in the areas or the specific behaviors in which I need to build skillfulness. Okay? I'm not one to think, okay, I'm going to get better at self-preservation. Well, what does that mean? Right? I have to pick some activities that are related to this. I'm going to get better at exercise. I'm going to get, get better at taking care of my health. So I like to start focusing on specific activities to pay attention to and just work on develop skillfulness rather than thinking, okay, I'm going to get better at this domain or I'm going to work on my social uh, for a while. Can we take a question from the audience, Kurt? Is that okay? uh, I can't hear you, Kurt. You're on mute. I just want to ask Peter if you have anything to add or a perspective on this conversation before we go on to the next question. If not, that's fine. But. Well, I, I would love to respond. I mean, there's just so much going, it's such a rich conversation. And so, you know, I, I want to speak to one thing, and then two minutes later, I want to speak to something else. I know. So, um, but I, I, just speaking up on what Mike was talking about, it's like, you know, and this is a whole subject too, is developing in each of our three instincts. And yes, I think it is about practice. You know, I think there are inner practices, but I think there have, have to be activities, you know, a, 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 things that we practice. If I want to get better at my self preservation instinct or have better functioning there, I've got to actually do some things, you know, and, um, uh, and that's amazing because, you know, I put it on my list to go see the doctor, you know, like, oh, I should do that. Six months later, I look at it again and I go, oh, gosh, I guess I forgot about that. You know what I mean? It was like, <laughs> or the dentist or whatever it is, you know, I was like, I'll take the car in. You know, fortunately, my wife is, is good in that area. But, um, you know, it, it, there's practices, you know, and I, I remember, you know, Pat and I, you know, after we spent all those years raising kids and, you know, it was like, okay, it's time for a date. She says, okay, well. All right, all right, we'll go out, we'll have a date. So we'll go out and we sit together, sit down together and across the table in a nice restaurant, we look at each other and it's like, okay, now what? You know, it's like, we are really out of practice. And I gotta tell you, the first day didn't go so well, but the second day got better. And the third, you know what I mean? It was only through practice that we were able to get back to that kind of one-to-one, -one, more of that one-to-one -one, uh, connection. Or again, I don't wanna say sexual in this regards, but the ability to kind of just be there and look at each other and be in that one-to-one, -one, you're important, we're here together kind of connection. So practice is a big deal. Okay, one more thing. I, I like topics where there's a little, Attention. So, um, Mario, um, one, of the, was coming, so yes. <laughs> one of the areas where I feel people being prickly is <laughs> about when the subject is talked talk about is um, you saying that there is a, a specific sequence that you have continually seen within people in terms of, uh, I don't know if, if they're Top yeah, yeah, is, yeah. Uh, I, I know what you're going Yeah, so talk, talk about that. <laughs> I'd be curious what the other, others of you think about it. So this is something that um, I, I think is why terminology is so important and why people have to understand exactly what I'm saying here, okay? Because I'm not saying that the so-called stack is fixed, okay? I see three specific patterns. I don't see six, okay? I know I'm an outlier here. I know people disagree with me. Um, and I wish I was wrong, right? I wish that I encountered evidence that, you know, that made me say, oh, wow, I was wrong. But you know, I, I work with people in organizations, and I have to go with what I tend to see as patterns. And so the patterns that I see is that once we understand what someone's dominant instinctual bias is, we can understand where the zone of indifference is and where the zone of inner conflict is. And I'll use myself as an example. Um, so my dominant bias is navigating. And the thing that I see in myself and all other navigators that I have worked with, okay, I always tell people I haven't met everyone yet. 
Okay. I can only talk about the people that I have spent time with, working with professionally, interacting with. What I see is that the transmitting domain becomes what I call the zone of inner conflict. Okay. I talk about it a lot more than I realize. I probably do it a lot more than I realize, but I have some conflicts and anxiety about it. And then the preserving domain is the one that I just don't pay attention to. It's not that I think I'm bad at it. It's not that I think anything about it. I just don't think about it. Like Peter described, I write, go to doctor on the refrigerator and then ignore it. Okay. Fortunately, I have a preserving wife or I would never see a doctor, right? Or I would eat, you know, a frozen pizza every meal and, and all these things. Okay. And what I see in navigators is that they have a tendency to just, you know, not pay attention to that stuff. They okay? just forget about it. In the preserving domain, okay, the tendency that I see is that the navigating domain is the zone of inner conflict. I want to be around people. I like it. But when I'm doing it, I really just kind of want to get back to my nest. Okay. Uh, so I find people interesting, but I need to get away from them as well. Okay. So there's this conflict. There's also this anxiety of did I do it effectively, right? Should I have said this or should I have said that? Should I have written an email this way? Should I have written it that way? Okay. So servers, they tend to have anxiety in the navigating domain. And the transmitting domain, again, using my definition of the term, which is about getting my message out there, getting attention, is something that most preservers just don't pay that much attention to unless it's Saturday night and, you know, they're, you know, they're college age, living in a college town, they want to, you know, find a date or whatever. Uh, so we go there when we need to, but what I find in most preservers that I work with uh, professionally, they say, you know what, I'm going to do a good job, I'm going to do hard work, and I'm going to let my actions speak for themselves. I'm not going to promote my work, I'm not going to tell everybody how great I am, I'm just going to get it done, and if people notice me, that's great, and if not, well, then it's, you know, life's not fair and I should be noticed. Now, when it comes to the transmitting domain, Again, what I find is that for transmitters, okay, just something in them that you know wants to transmit to people, the navigating domain, I'm sorry, the preserving domain is the zone of inner conflict. They talk about it a lot more than they realize. Okay, they talk about food, they talk about their their environment, they talk about comfort. It's, it's not to say that they take good care of themselves. Okay, it's about what do I pay attention to, what do I talk about, not what am I good at. Okay, and the navigating domain which is about kind of the gossip and, you know, who's doing what with whom and what are the organizational politics and dynamics, those things tend not to be of interest to most transmitters in my experience, other than in a very transactional way. So what I find with most transmitters in organizations is they can be political in the sense of I'm trying to get ahead, I'm going to promote myself, but they always get hung up over organizational dynamics and politics, which in my definition is the navigating domain. Thank you. Uh, B, uh, my dominant instinct is not social. But looking at your face and your facial expressions, I have a sense that there's something on your mind. And, <laughs> and also... Maybe um, you're just very perceptive. <laughs> also, I'm thinking, here's what's going through my mind. Mario works in organizations. You work as a therapist with individuals. Do you see any different pattern or sequence in terms of people's instincts and how they show up? Or what are you thinking about right now? Yeah, so I work as a therapist and a coach, and also I work in business, and also more and more I do a lot of Enneagram workshops and inner work retreats. And I, I don't see the same pattern Mario sees. Uh, Naranjo says that there are six sequences. So you could have self-preservation, you could be a self-preservation dominant and have either social second or sexual second, in which case you would have a different repressed, right? So there are six sequences. If you're social, you could have self-preservation second or sexual second. If you're sexual dominant, you could have social second or self-preservation dominant. Now that's what I see um, in, my, in myself, in my in the people we work with. And now I happen to be in the pattern that, Naran that um, Mario set sees. But for instance, I, I'm a self-preservation dominant too. I have social second and sexual repressed is what we call it. I have a very good friend who happens to be a big Enneagram student. She comes to all our work retreats. She is self-preservation dominant. She has sexual second and she is social repressed. Now we have a lot of patterns that both of us can talk about that are similar because we're both self-preservation twos, but we also have a lot of differences that we've noticed. We go out to dinner together. We pay attention to different things. We have different feelings about different experiences. Um, and especially you see this with fours and sixes because according to the subtype approach that, that we teach, um, they're the most different from one another. So the three fours are quite distinct from one another and the three sixes are quite distinct. In fact, Naranjo says you can almost not talk about one six. And when I even now when I do introductory workshops, I, I talk I have to talk about the subtypes even before I actually want to because it's another level of complexity and I like to keep it simple, as simple as I can. Um, but with sixes, you find a big difference between uh, a sexual six who has self-preservation second, which makes them a little more warmer, a little bit more in touch with fear, than a sexual six that has social second that makes them a little more intellectual, a little less in touch with fear, a little less warm and personable. So I, I see something very different than Mario sees. Um, it may be the context he works in, it may be the way we define things, uh, but I really do see these six sequences and that, there, that, that these six sequences are important to be aware of, of course, because there's different repressed, different repressed instincts, uh, as well as different dominant instincts, and the whole sequence sometimes can have a flavor to it. And one question I would ask Mario is, you know, is, you know, I know that he, he's a, in a really good way, uh, advocate of the scientific method, but uh, I guess what we need to ask both of ourselves is, are our theories falsifiable? In other words, if someone comes to you and say, I have a totally different sequence than you're describing, can you, uh, you know, fit that into your model? Uh, I, I think it's important that we don't get too rigid about our definitions so that we can sort of really kind of stay open to what's out there. But that, that's just what I've seen in terms of the people that we work with over and over again, like a four who's social, it looks really different if they have sexual second. They have more access to anger, for instance. I, I know I'm sure Russ and Peter have something to say on this, but I'll, I'll respond to B if, if, I, if I could. Uh, B, I, I mean, 
I completely agree, right? These things are they're very difficult to falsify, and it has a lot to do with definitions. Okay? And I think it has to do with, again, a very specific set of definitions I have. And we can find anything in ourselves. This is one of the problems with the Enneagram in general, is that we can find all kinds of stuff in ourselves, right? And we can then start to craft our narratives about this. And the thing that keeps me awake at night, in addition to confirmation bias, is am I fooling myself? And is this whole thing a load of crap that we've fallen into some collective illusion about, right? Are, are, you know, are we all falling into seeing these patterns that are really just noise in you know, something rather than an actual signal? So I have, you know, I am not wedded to this. I am not thinking, you know, uh, it has to be this way. I have no idea why it is, right? What is, is there a reason why I see this pattern? All I know is that over, you know, 20 years of doing 360 assessments with people, I see over and over again, if somebody is predominant in transmitting, where they end up needing work is understanding group dynamics and organizational politics, right? Where somebody is preserving in their 360, I know I'm going to get feedback that says they have problems around promoting themselves. And when they're navigating, I know that they're going to get feedback that says, yeah, you know what? Not a detailed person and kind of lets things live and doesn't execute and all these sort of things, right? So why is that? I have no idea. Are there minute variations inside of that? Perhaps, right? I mean, very well could be. But I know that I've seen these patterns and I know that as an executive coach and working with teams, it's really helpful to see these patterns in people. Right? So I'll, I'll just share that. Peter, clarify all of this for us. <laughs> you know, I, when, when Mario is speaking, I, I'm like believing in Mario. No? When Pete is speaking, I'm believing in Mario. What it means to me is that there's different ways to look at this. And really, the main point is we have to be able to explore our own experience, you know. And, you know, uh, I, I think the theories are good. The intellectual structure is really necessary. Um, and there are different views that show up there. And at the bottom line is we have to say, okay, so how does this apply to the median? What's useful? The other thing I'm thinking so much about as you're talking, just because Peter, that's that's exactly it. And it, it, it's got me thinking about mirror neurons and you know, kind of how we can kind of match when somebody's talking. And then I'm thinking of Helen and energy follows attention of what are you looking for? And then 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 the Daniel Kahneman work of thinking fast and slow. And it's like we can't trust anything. It's just like it happens so instinctually. And then we want to start to organize it. And um and and sometimes we get in trouble. And then you're talking about the, the, the actual definitions and how we actually try to develop constructs in that. Well, let's say I'm organized. <laughs> I'm very organized as a, as, a, as a human being, and my, you know, it's definitely I'm disorganized. But I'm also organized in how I understand this and how I teach it, and uh, and I like that and I appreciate that. And it's always has to be held somewhat lightly, you know. And how does it work for each person? What can you, you know? So for people who are trying to get the the right answers and the right ideal, you know, ideational construct here, you know, just hold it a little bit lightly. Put it in conversation. Put it in your own practice, uh, uh, and it'll 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 work for right. you. Well, Leslie, this discussion has raised more questions in my mind, but. We still have about 35 plus minutes left for this discussion, and I think we need to give a little voice to the questions that our audience are, are asking. Yeah. So have you been looking at them? I think you've been looking at yeah, those. There's, there's, yeah, there's a couple of pragmatic ones that are easier to easier to ask about. Russ, somebody asked about where they can find information on the zones. I don't know if it's written anywhere. I know that if it's not written, I do. I listen to your IEA thing. I, I created just, it's like one page. And if you would be okay, if we could put that somewhere, I, I just took your zones, you could prove it, and then we could put it somewhere on the, on the IEA website. Yeah, we can do, I can do something like that. I don't have it in any book or anything like that yet. It's on some shit recordings I've done. It's on IEA recordings I've done. And I'm still in the work of refining it. Um, right. One thing I, I, to just make people really kill over, I took each zone and broke it into five behavioral clusters. They're so specific, people can't fool themselves. Okay. And I did a week-long retreat where we said, throw out everything you think you are and just answer these questions. And we looked at every behavioral cluster. Would you say you spent a lot of time with it? Some time with it. Eh, not that much. I really could use a little more time. And we, and we made little charts and we got points for each one. And you know what? Like any real science project, anybody ever study science, you ever do a physics experiment in, in high school or in college or, or chemistry, you'll get data points and then you try to see if there's any meaningful patterns. And what I found is that uh, there, there's significant variation from the patterns we might predict in the actual lived lives of individuals when they're just nakedly looking at this. But what we also found was that there was a core of psychodynamic wounding that sat in the middle of all of it. And people were just weeping at the end of this at what they were seeing about themselves. So I, I, what I want to say about that is the model, and I think all of my colleagues are saying this, is not the thing. The model is a launching pad for learning the skills of self-observation, for the practice of seeing ourselves more accurately. We're never going to perfectly fit some description, no matter how much tri-type and counter-type and wing and instinct we throw in the mix. It's never going to perfectly describe our narcissistic self-concept. The point is to see your assumptions about yourself. The point is to see what you usually don't see, and you can try on different lenses as we're all proposing here, and you, it will highlight different things about the complex inner world of a human being. So complex answer to a question, but I will put something like that up, and we should talk about that. Yeah. Okay, thank you, Russ. B, did you have something you wanted to do? I, I was just going to say, I hope we can talk about subjects, because we mostly talked about instincts, and I know there's not that much time left, and I think this is often what happens, is we spend a little bit too much time focusing on the three instincts and not as much time on the 27 subtypes, which to me are often uh, a practical way into working with people. So B, you just like, you just gave me an opening into this question, because it says, do, they, do these instincts, these subtypes always point back to motivations of the type, or do they have their own motivations? 
um, related to these things themselves. And I, I feel like I want to, I, I want to kind of almost shift that slightly to your conversation about the subtypes to talk a little bit about the 27 subtypes. How, how do these, um, how does this all get manifested within our type structure? And I'm, and I'm asking you that, B. So I think the way it manifests is through the subtype, right? Because I think what the subtype is, is it points to the fact that uh, we're often motivated by a combination of our instinct, our dominant instinct, or we could even say our instinctual sequence, uh, mixed up with the uh, emotional motive of the type, right? So um, whether you, you can focus on the passion or you can focus on some of the patterns of behavior and emotion and thinking that comes out of that chief feature. Um, but I think it's the, the unique thing about the subtype is we have, instead of having just nine categories where we have nine sort of patterns that we can kind of identify that are launching patterns for self-observation, we actually have 27. So we have even more specific uh, maps of these very particular patterns. So it's almost like um, having a more well-defined map. Like if you're using a map, and this is the old days now, from to get from you know uh, New York to Philadelphia, if you just have the main highways, but you need to get to somebody's house, you may not know what that is. So, but if you have all the side streets and everything, if you have a more, more definition, more nuance, more specificity, it helps you even more as a map. Uh, and I think what the subtypes do is they give more nuance, more targeted, uh, more specific information about motivation and the things that we do so that we can use that for self-observation and, and, and personal development. Now, one of the most important things I think about the 27 subtypes is it includes descriptions of motivations and patterns and, and sub-personalities that are not included in the nine types. So if someone just reads about the nine types and they're a type that isn't one of the main, of the type that's mainly described, like if you're a self-preservation four, you may not find yourself in the Enneagram. And that happened over, and, and by the way, when I first started teaching Enneagram, I didn't go out, because this isn't my theory, I got it from somebody else. So I went out there and said, is this right? Like, do you guys relate to this? Does this make sense? Does this help make more sense? Is it the Enneagram is a sense-making framework? Does this help more, make even more sense of it? And people were stunned, and they, some of them found themselves in the Enneagram who had, no, had not ever been really clear what their type was, because it wasn't certain of the 27 that are described by the nine. So I think that subtypes are very important, because it's almost the way in to work with yourself, because it gives you more fine-tuning around, no, this is what I do. And so you get some some fours that may not relate to, the self support doesn't relate to being a four, because sometimes people think, well, all fours need to be melancholy and showing that in self-preservation for doesn't look like that. Um, the social seven, like you are, Leslie, it doesn't look like a typical seven. It can even look like a two. Uh, so there are, there are types that don't look as, as we might expect them. And so I think this both helps with thing, but even more important than that, it points to the fact that there are, there are 27 different motivational patterns and 27 different growth paths. So if you're really sincere about using the Enneagram for inner work, you, you want to get all the information you can. And like I run into a lot of threes that didn't relate, that I didn't relate to being a three. I could count myself as a three. Well, there are self-preservation or a sexual three. And the social three is more the three that's described when we talk about the nine types. Mm, yeah. Um, could you, somebody asked about, somebody said, would you share an example from each teacher on working with these instances with the clients? And just so you all know, we are going to have that in the afternoon where people, where each of these teachers is going to be interviewing somebody and we'll be able to actually work on the ground with it. But I'd, all be, I'd also be interested in getting into kind of a little bit of just some practical examples that people could connect to of experiences of these subtypes that, that you could speak to that would you know help make sense of, of it for people in their lives. Um, can I actually comment on what B said? Um, I, I don't want to take this backwards, so I'll ask your permission first. So we want to move on that. Yes, line, but... no, do it. Okay. All right. So, um, so the way I think of it, B, um, is that um, for me, the instinctual bias is a set of values. Okay, what we think is important. The uh, the type is a strategy for how we go about it. Okay. So as a navigating eight, what matters to me is things related to the navigating domain. My strategy for achieving those things is different than say the navigating one. Right. So absolutely, twenty seven different characters. I see. Um, however, the instinctual bias and the strategy as two elements of something, right? So we can compare it to height versus height and weight, okay? My 16-year-old son is 6'3", okay? I'm also 6'3". Um, he weighs 145 pounds. I do not, okay? So if you're describing someone as the person who's 6'3", yeah, sure, okay? Uh, but he's a very different 6'3 than I am, okay? And so for me, these two elements add a dimension. Now, we can talk about weight in its own right, I believe, just like we can talk about height in its own right. Both of them are valid topics for conversation and exploration, but they mean more when we put them together, right? So, so that's the point I want to make is that I think that we can talk about these things independently with the knowledge that it's it's less sufficient, okay? less accurate, less robust if we're not adding the other dimension, but that works for the same type. Uh, I'll also say regarding the descriptions, and I absolutely agree with you, uh, people don't see themselves very often until they see the subtypes, but I think also that's a reflection of what is written about the type. And very often when I'm reading somebody's description of an Enneagram type, I can tell that they're biased toward a particular subtype. If I look at my own first book, right, when I read about the three, I'm writing about a navigating three. So a preserving three is not going to see themselves there, right? But that's a flaw in my writing of not understanding at the time the complexity here and, you know, and following that out. So, so I want to, you know, I think this is an area where we might have a little bit of disagreement on can we talk about one without the other, right? I think we can with the understanding that it's more robust to put them together. Yeah, I wouldn't say we can't talk about them without the other. I think we can. We can talk about the component parts and then we can put them together. Now, I think what I find is hard is, is sometimes I think people can't decide which of the three instincts is dominant. They think, oh, I must be self-preservation because I do that, but they're not. Sure. Because it's sort of like when you first work with someone with the Enneagram and you're type, trying to type them and you say, well, what center do you think you are, right? A lot of ones will think they're coming from the head center, right? I thought I was coming from the head center. I'm the heart type. Um, so I think it's hard. I find it's harder to get in because 
the instincts can be a little bit tricky in terms of understanding how we relate to them. You know, like, like both of you were saying, you've got zones, you've got domains, it's complicated. Uh, and so I think I find that it's just like people can look at the descriptions of the nine types and go, oh, I'm more like that one than that one. I think when you look at the descriptions of the subtypes, and you're right, we haven't had uh, very good ones in the past, which I think is a really important point. We just didn't know. And I think all the theorists in the Enneagram world are just trying to do the best they can with what they have. And so part of what, what keeps me awake at night is how do we work together to evolve the theory in the best way possible, not in terms of who's right and wrong, but in terms of what works for people, what helps people grow in the easiest, most efficient, most powerful ways. And I happen to think that these subtype descriptions that Veronica brought, like I said, for my own example, in one day I had a revolution in terms of my understanding because there was this other kind of description of a more specific set of patterns that are more unconscious, by the way, because they involve instinct uh, that I wasn't aware of. So I would say, yeah, we can absolutely work with instincts. Now, that can be tricky because do you have all the people in the right groups? You know, maybe if you just raise your hands and say, I'm a social, I'm this, if people are going like what we said, like, oh, I don't like to join groups, so I can't be a social. Well, my brother's a social and he, he feels like a misfit in, in groups all the time. He's always trying to get away from groups. Now he's an opera conductor, so he's outside the group, leaving the group, right? So he's not, he's not exactly a very good navigator. He feels very uncomfortable, at, you know, navigating, but he's really good at modeling, which is what social ones do. They, they're good teachers, they're good modelers, and that's the way they relate to the group. So I think the subtype is almost just the best way in to saying, how can I quickly understand myself and what my work is based on how, what I identify with? And like Russ is saying, it's not 100%, these are archetypes, but how can I understand myself through finding myself in this description of my motivations and my focus of attention and my habitual patterns such that I can start to uh, work with that? Can I add anything? What did you say, Russ? Can I add anything? Yeah, sure, go ahead. Sure. This map was not designed for casual viewing, period. It was designed for people who were absolutely dedicated and engaged in life of inner work. It was not meant to be pop psychology ever. Right. It's popular now. So we're in the very difficult work of trying to take something that is complex. I'm sorry, it is. And profound and deep and requiring certain kind of experiences that a lot of us haven't necessarily had or we may have had them and not recognized them. So to really get this to a place where people can get it on a street level is a big challenge. And everybody who's teaching this is really trying to find the best ways they can to do that. Now, vis-a-vis -vis, you know, what we're talking about here, what you're bringing be, I would say the good news is about 22 of the 27, 21, 22 of the 27, there's almost total agreement across the boards from all the teachers about those characteristics. There's about five or six of them that there are differences. I would say that what I want to suggest to people, and this is uh, this came out of a conversation I had with Claudio Naranjo years ago. We were talking about the whole way in context, how things like countertype can be helpful or hinder, but true of any of it. Most people don't see themselves very well at first. The core of the Enneagram teaching is the passion. If you can't see the passion, you're wasting your time. I can take any group of people and come up with some characteristics and say, okay, those who like the color, their favorite color is blue, and they like the music of the Beatles, and they are um, prefer to be outdoors than indoors, please assemble over here. And you'll get certain people to agree with that. Go, wow, that's me. It doesn't mean anything if it's unhinged from the framework that is there to help people see something about themselves. You understand me? I'm not saying that about any of the, my co-panelists here. I'm just saying as I see people take bits and pieces of this and run off and become instant experts on Facebook or whatever, there's a lot of mischief getting made. If you don't see envy, you're not a four. It may take strange forms, but it, that's what defines ego melancholy is the definition. And there's variations and that's what we're looking at. And I completely agree that it can be windows in, but we have to be intelligent and careful and patient in the process. Most people don't find their type right away. And in a sense, it's the booby prize. You find your type, so what? Unless it becomes integrated in a real sincere interest in seeing what the heck's going on in me and why I react the way I do and why some things seem close to me and some things I overdo in all the ways we're talking about, it's really not doing that much other than a nice hobby to talk about with my other you know, spiritual friends. So I really just want to keep bringing us back. We get into these conversations and there are details to be worked out. And I love that we're having this conversation. I love and respect everything that's happening here. But sometimes we have to actually take a step back and see what exactly are we doing with all this? What's our aim? What's our purpose? How is this helping us? I also so wanted, just, oh, yeah. sorry, about, sorry about that, Russ, go ahead. Yeah, ju just finding a description that I agree with helps my narcissism, but it doesn't necessarily help me evolve. It has to go beyond that. And that relates to what you were saying, Peter, about you have to find some behaviors to do some things differently. There's the awareness, and then you're aware of things that actually need to change. I know all my colleagues agree with this. But I just wanted to make this point because it doesn't always get made strongly enough. And then people come away from these kind of conversations and make it into something other than what we maybe intended. Yeah, I agree completely with you, Russ. And that is exactly why I, I feel strongly about the subtype approach is because I think it helps people get to a deeper level. It helps people really do the work. Uh, and I agree with you also that the passion is the core. Uh, and one of the things that's interesting about the countertypes is that sometimes at first, they are the ones that most don't relate to the passion or they don't see it, partly because they're expressing it in a different way. Now, it doesn't mean they aren't subject to the passion. They absolutely are just as much as all of the people in that same type are, but it helps the person both type themselves and find how that type manifests in their own life, in their own patterns, 
because they know, oh, like if I'm a self-preservation four, I don't relate to envy at first. So I have to really, oh, what happens for me as a self-preservation four is before I even start feeling envy, I go into action to try to get what that person has that I don't have that I think makes me feel like there's something lacking. Now, again, when they do inner work, which is the whole point, they start to see, oh, I do have envy. I just have, it's been masked by this tendency to move into action very quickly and to kind of do and be strong and stoic and things like that. Yeah. The, the effect of the self-preservation three is not a flashy three, so they're not going to relate. Right, right. So I have yeah. no difference with that. The other thing I say about this is, look, not everybody working with the Enneagram needs to be in a deep inner work school. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that to actually even be effective in coaching or working with teams or psychotherapy, we need to be able to understand this on a deeper level than just these descriptions. Well, I think sometimes there's this distinction, too, between the the, the, the person, the people who are teaching and the people who are doing the teaching, where they're, if you're going to be teaching this, there has to be a certain capacity for self-observation. And um, I was thinking again, like of the Wilbur's uh, evolutionary stages, where just the capacity to self-observe is absolutely is, is a leap in a awareness, you know, because a lot, for a lot of people, they're looking at external behaviors. You know, if you look at the traditional level of development from that perspective, that they're looking at outer behaviors, they're looking at how I am with my growth, and the capacity to take the inward turn and self-observe is is something that is a is a leap in consciousness. And so, when you're talking about how how it's become popularized for us, and we are you know we're seeing all of these memes, and everybody has reactions to a lot of these memes, and kind of the distillation of the enneagram. Sometimes for some people that's a portal of entry, and you know for those of like for me, it's, there's a strong interest in, in spiritual matters. And but what I found is is that business is called, and it, it's like okay, so what's the portal of entry of this group where I'm teaching? What's going to be effective here? And and listening to all of you, it's it's. It's it's kind of like what what do we need right now? You know, yeah. I'm not suggesting that the passion is the portal of entry. Most people don't understand the passion at first. Right, right. That's a rather advanced. But I'm saying if, we're, if we as the facilitators are understanding it, that there's no such thing as the type that doesn't have the passion. Right, right. right. That's what I'm saying. Right. Like people make these weird exceptions, and then they create parking spots where the, the actual help of the enneagram can never get to them. And who am I to decide that for anyone? But I believe we we teach people according to where they are, what their level of understanding is, what you know, opens things up for them. I'm, all I'm saying is that you, you, there's a core to each of the Enneagram types. And, you know, we talked about that for years. I talked about this narrative tradition talks about that being around Mario. We all talk about there's a core to the structure of the whole thing. And you can and you don't, you want to be careful of people making exceptions to that in such a way that they never get to the core in their process. That's all I'm saying. Kurt, would you be okay if we went to audience questions or do you have something you want to ask? Yeah, I just want to clarify one thing. I don't want to make assumptions about the level of um, knowledge of our audience. You mentioned counter types. Could you mm -hmm. briefly say what the counter type is so people are clear about that? Sure. So um, Naranjo notes in his approach to the subtypes that there are three versions of each of the nine types according to which instinct is dominant. And for each of the nine types, there are two of these subtypes that kind of flow with the energy of the passion, uh, with the energy of, of the type itself, uh, and one that's kind of upside down. One that kind of goes against, especially the expression, the normal expression of the passion. Uh, and so this is a type that he calls a counter type. Now, the great example that we probably all know about is the counterphobic six. Um, so in, in this approach, the sexual six would be the most counterphobic six. Most sixes will tell you that there's no such thing as 100% counterphobic or 100% phobic. But we, all, we often see in sixes that there are some that are more in touch with fear and doubt and questioning. They're more actively fearful. And some sixes that don't really feel fear at all, that go against fear with strength. They almost become scary as a way of keeping this, the threat at a distance. Um, so we, we kind of know there's a counterphobic six. Well, it's the idea that all nine types have a countertype in the same way that six has this counterphobic six that isn't so aware of the passion. Now, do counterphobic sixes have as much fear as every other six? Yes. So exactly like Russ is saying, the passion is still active and still central and still something that needs to be got, uh, aware of and work with. Uh, but the way it gets expressed is different. So you have uh, the self-preservation three that doesn't really, it has vanity for having no vanity, uh, that may be caught up in self-deceit that's trying to be honest and doesn't see at a deeper level that they don't really know who they really are at a deeper level. You know, so it, and it applies to all nine types that we all have this type that kind of, you know, the social seven goes against gluttony and tries to be of service. So um, all of these types have a countertype and it's very helpful to understand what that is because just to know the way, all the different ways that each type manifests. Thank you. Leslie, go ahead with audience questions. So a question from Maggie, what role does the environment in which we grew up affect our instincts? Peter, could you speak to that? I think that the instincts are, are shaped and influenced greatly in our early childhood, uh, depending on the you know family situation, the, the social situation, our attachment issues, and all that stuff. We don't really know, you know, again, nurture and nature. You know, um, as a parent, I've come around to thinking that the type structures generally are more in nature because the kids show up with a certain something, a certain kind of neurobiology, a certain temperament, and maybe some flexibility in there. Um, but in terms of the predominant instinct, that may have more to do with early uh, nurture. Again, I don't know for sure, but I think that um, a lot of people will report that they had these kind of experiences in their childhood, and so one of the instincts got very much highlighted. Either it got highlighted because that's what the trains ran on in their family situation, or it got highlighted because um, <clears throat> there was some uh, 
problem, some big challenge, some crisis, some, some you know, deficit in that particular area. Because we have to remember that all three of these instincts have to do with our survival. It, you know, they can be more than that as we, as we live our lives, but they all started from, a, you know, it's all about survival. We couldn't survive if we didn't have all three. So, Peter, you're saying it wasn't always like if there's a three-legged school, it wasn't always kind of the most compromised leg that somebody ends up beating or something like that. It's, it could also be you're saying that, like, the, the family of origin itself and, and, and you know, what it was structured around. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, it's one of these really interesting questions that we all can explore, you know. Um, uh, there are theories about it, you know. I mean, we could say that, um, you know, in that first year of life and also prenatal, if there was some shock to our basic sense of self-preservation or survival in a very foundational way, we might be more oriented towards self-preservation as we don't an instinct later in life because we have to, in some sense, compensate or make sure that that gets handled. Um, but I don't think that's the only way to look at it. So, so you know, uh, but I think it's an interesting way to look at it. Other thoughts about this? I have a historical note. Um, when Claudio was working on this stuff, he was working very closely with a man named Armando Molina, and he tips his hat to him in character and neurosis. And Armando Molina started going from this work into a study called axiology, which means the study of values, what we value. And he saw that the instincts were, or the subtypes, if you will, were really reflecting what we value. And here's where historically it gets a little muddy and perhaps the origin of some of our confusion. Claudio and, and Armando worked a while, but they, they differed on this exact view. Claudio felt that there was some likelihood, there was some early, early prenatal, perhaps genetic basis to instinctual biases. And Armando felt that they had to do with problems in different developmental phases of childhood. And they both, you know, I think the correct answer is we don't know. <laughs> I don't know exactly what determines this, but it's a really interesting thing to study. I think will emerge as we understand more about how our genome interacts with our environment, that's epigenetics and, and other things. But just to say that that conversation brought in three elements that all get mixed in weird ways into the subtype conversation. There is one, the instincts, which is a work that comes out of the Gurdjieff work and how you work with the instinctual energies. That's one. Two, Gurdjieff talked about subtypes in that each center had three subdivisions in it. So, for example, the head center has a head part of the head center, a heart part of the head center, a belly part of the head center, and the heart center is a head part, a heart part, and a belly part, etc. If you're looking at it that way, Gurdjieff, by the way, said that there is an archetype, and then remembering what you were saying, Peter, in each one of these subdivisions of the centers that becomes a role that the person lives. Now, that is in the lead-in, and that will provide you with 27 combinations because it's a combination of the three main centers and then how you're oriented in this subdivided center. So it gets quite complicated. But in any case, if you're talking about the heart center part of the head center, then you're talking about one-on-one -on -one and connection and how that affects the way you think. If you're talking about that in terms of your belly center, you're talking about the emotional connectivity part of it. Armando Molina called these, he used completely different terms. He called them intrinsic, extrinsic, and systemic. Instead of using and I'm, I'm so sorry, I'm going to do that. I'm going to, I'm going to come on in here because we've got seven minutes left. I've got okay. a so, lot of different questions here. So I'll, I'll mark it off right there. Yeah. This is the one thing I wanted people to get from this whole thing. Nobody knows this. Nobody talks about it. There was a lot of debate in the beginning of how this all got created. There was no Ten Commandments about it that came down from on high. There were really interesting theories plugging into different schools of psychology and so forth. And we've inherited all that. And we're continuing the process of trying to sort it out like we're doing today. I just want people to know that. Claudio didn't have this all figured out. Oscar didn't have this all figured out. Gurdjieff didn't have this all figured out. And we're working on it. Leslie, I know there's a lot more audience questions. This afternoon, we have 45 minutes, additional minutes for audience questions. Because we only have five minutes left, I'm wondering if the four of you would each like to take a minute and just say anything that's on your mind about this discussion in terms of value or things left unresolved or any, anything, if, if, if there's something on your mind before we quit. I, I have a strong feeling about something, which is, and this is where I get to be a little disagreeable, um, because I agree with so much of what people are saying. But when we start talking about the passions, you know, I would really like to like let the, that language go. I would like to talk about the emotional habits. I would like to bring it into the context of psychology with respect to the history there in the Christian tradition. But, you know, I just don't think that the language, um, I think we need an update. You know, like we talk about the passion for eight being lust. Well, you know, really, I understand what that means, but my emotional habit is a form of anger. And that's what I really need to work with. And how that anger shows up in the expression of my subtype and creates big trouble for me, you know, and that's a whole story in itself. But, you know, and sloth for nine. Could we let that go, you know, and talk about the kind of inertia towards oneself or the stubborn unwillingness, you know, the nine version of anger, you know, like I won't, you know, and so on around the eight ground. I just want to make a case for an update on the language. Emotional habit, I think, is it's more tangible. Mm -hmm. I'd like to make two comments if I could sure. uh, very quickly. Um, uh, so we have to remember the story of the uh, blind man and the elephant, right? Um, being careful and assuming that just because I'm feeling the ear and Peter's feeling the trunk and, you know, Russ is feeling the tail, that, you know, none of us, you know, we can all talk about different aspects of it, right? And still be valid. So people want to talk about the passions, that's great. I don't, right? Because it's not suitable for my audience. I'm aware of it. I understand the theory. I understand exactly what Peter's saying. In order to get through to my audience, I need to use a different language and emphasize another element of the uh, elephant. Okay? Uh, the other thing is, I, I want to just reiterate uh, what I heard Russ saying and, and uh, others as well. 
we don't know, right? We don't know what causes this stuff, right? I am very leery of any causal mechanism. I have four boys. Okay? I have a laboratory at home. I was studying Enneagram for years before I started having boys. What I can tell you, if somebody thinks they know what shapes our personality, they're full of nonsense because nobody knows nothing, okay? Lots of interesting ideas. Let's focus on what it is we do, what gets us into trouble, and how we can track those patterns rather than worrying whether or not it was because my holding environment was this or my mother dropped me on my head or I didn't have enough you know, formula when I was a child, okay? What is it we're doing that's getting us into trouble? What do we need to understand about ourselves to fix that? And then how can we change it? Um, well, I agree that sometimes the way we teach the Enneagram and the, the preferences we have for language or concepts that are central depend on our audience. And so what I would say is, let's be clear about where audiences are and make sure that when we're developing theory, we're saying this goes for this audience. Because sometimes what I sense is that although one person is defining, if someone is defining their terms and their way of teaching for one audience, they're putting it out there like it's for everyone. Um, now, I do work in, in psych psychotherapeutic settings and business settings, and especially in spiritual deep inner work settings. And where I find that the, the term of the passion is very important in all the rich uh, background and spiritual tradition that comes from it. Now, some people have been turned off by religion or things like that, and that's that makes sense. And yet there's this rich spiritual tradition behind the Enneagram going back a long ways. Similarly, um, although I hear you taking a practical approach, Mary, and I think that's very good. I think sometimes in some circumstances, it's good. like, let's just look at where, 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 how do I get from A to B? What's getting in my way? How do I understand that? And how do I get over that? I'm a psychotherapist. What I think, when I work with people doing deep work, especially around feeling trauma and things like that, man, it helps a lot to know how that developed and how that came to be in place and how your patterns came to be there. Now, not everyone needs to know that. If you're, uh, you know, just trying to do a, a business task or work with a team, maybe you don't need to know all that stuff, and that's okay. Uh, but let's say who's our audience, and that's where we're coming from, uh, and and let's be clear about that, and and not necessarily overgeneralize to all audiences when we're really aimed at one audience. And also, I think the elephant analogy. I think, again, so far, we haven't been working together. You know, Russ, I love what you're saying about we're still evolving a theory. We are. We're still evolving this. The question is, how do we bring in new information, right? There are no brought in this new information. The subtypes, it hasn't really permeated all of the Enneagram world, right? How, and, and maybe it's not the best. You know, that's maybe for the community to decide. But how do we have that, a process of that? And I do really appreciate this conversation here because I think we are really starting to do that. And so I really appreciate the moderation of this because I don't get the feeling I normally get where we're, where we're backing off around just disagreeing with everything and we just start saying, oh, everyone's right, everything's held lightly. When I think, well, no, actually, let's really talk about this at a deeper level and let's really find out what really works. And but maybe it's what works for different audiences in different settings, but let's clarify that. Thanks, Russ, final thoughts? You're muted. I'll just unmute it. Well, yeah, I think what we're, we're talking about here are several moving targets, but one of them is, yes, we, we're different audiences, as I was saying, there are different levels of understanding, different human needs we're addressing. I was just saying that the core of it, where it came from, when the original models and words like the passions were being cooked up, it was to a particular audience or a particular purpose. Right. And it's hard in the work of trying to translate that. And I very much appreciate what you were saying, Peter. I think that always we need to find uh, fresh and appropriate language that helps people come to what we're trying to point them to, help them see. Uh, you know, we, you know, we, you don't, and if you're with a certain group, you, you do that. I, for example, if I was going to talk about the passion to a general group, I'd say traditionally, this was called this, coming from this old traditions, which is an old fashioned way of talking about X, Y, and Z psychological issues. I do think that it's kind of tying into what you're just saying, B, that yes, having more substantive conversations, not just saying, well, we, we all, there's different ways of holding it. Yeah, that's true. But how do those ways fit together? Where are they congruent? What can we learn from where they're not? And so forth, I think is a valid thing. And I'm just really enjoying the way we're talking about it today. And one thing, just so you all know, from Kurt, you're muted right now. So you all know a couple of things that are coming through. One is people want some of the audience questions. We are going to have time for that this afternoon. We are going to have time to work kind of on the ground with one panelist. Somebody asked about tools. That's really not the function of what this is. Each one of these teachers um, has a real robust body of teaching, and they're going. We're also going to have time at the very end to hear about that, to hear about to find how to find access to um, each one of their bodies of work so that you can do your own delving. They've got YouTube to publish things um, so that you can do your own work around that. But we're not, this structure itself really isn't designed um, to give tools uh, to people to know how to use that. So, Kurt, right. you so we're going to take a 30 minute break, go eat lunch, breakfast, dinner, wherever you're at, whatever is appropriate, okay. take a bathroom break. Um, when we come back, um, each of these four uh, teachers will be working one on one with the person to try and help them further explore um, their instincts. Okay. So um, enjoy the next half hour, and uh, my thanks to the four of you. Fabulous discussion. Thank you so much.